It was a jaw-dropping end to what had been a jaw-dropping 24 hours. Yevgeny Prigozhin's Wagner mercenaries had stormed from Ukraine through southern Russia virtually unopposed, humiliating the Russian army and Vladimir Putin in the process. But on Saturday evening, just over 120 miles from Moscow, Prigozhin, the k 2 turned mercenary warlord, stunned the world by calling an end to this attempted military coup. But the shockwaves from the extraordinary 24-hour rampage haven't stopped there. Welcome to the iPodcast, where we explore what this means for Putin, Russia and the war in Ukraine. But before we get into it, this is how the attempted mutiny went down. Prigozhin had been criticising the Russian state over their handling of the conflict in Ukraine for months. On the 5th of May, he'd released a pretty gruesome video, standing in front of a pile of dead bodies. These were his men, and he blamed their deaths on the Russian state. But on Friday, he issued a final rant, which appeared to debunk all of Moscow's reasons for invading Ukraine. He says the operation came under false pretenses, devised by the Russian Ministry of Defence. He said that Russia was actually losing ground on the battlefield and accused the Russian army of bombing Wagner forces. It was a stunning rebuke of a lie which Moscow has been turning for months. Russia's FSB security service responded. They opened a criminal case against Prigozhin, saying that he'd called for armed mutiny against the state. But none of us expected what happened on Saturday morning. Images were spreading across the internet of Wagner troops in the streets of Rostov-on-Don, and they appeared to have occupied Russia's HQ running the Ukraine operations. A short time later, Putin appears on national television, calling it treason. He promises to crush this armed mutiny, which he says is a stab in the back from Prigozhin. But Prigozhin won't back down. He says his march is ready to go all the way to Moscow and on his Telegram channel says, soon we will have a new Russian president. Things escalate even further. Russian helicopters open fire on the mercenaries on their own soil as they advance towards the capital. Putin's ally, Chechen leader Ramzan Kadyrov, says his forces are ready to help put down the revolt, and Moscow kicks into overdrive. Russian soldiers set up a machine gun position on the southwest edge of Moscow, according to photographs. Then, in a plot twist no one expected, at 8pm on Saturday evening, just 120 miles or so from Moscow, Prigozhin stuns the world. He calls for an end to the attempted military coup. He says he will not spill Russian blood in his attempt to take the capital. In 
It transpires that Belarus's president, Alexander Lukashenko, has brokered a deal. Through this, no one from Wagner will be prosecuted, and they can even join the Russian army. As for Prigozhin, he'll go into exile in Belarus. It's remarkable leniency from Putin, who's had people killed for far less. But despite its swift resolution, this is by no means over for Putin. As Prigozhin departed Rostov, young men cheered and chanted Wagner, and when Putin's Russian officials arrived, they were booed. I'm in Westminster, where the UK government is unpicking just what happened this weekend and what it should do next. I'm joined by our special correspondent, Patrick Coburn, who's been reporting on Russia for decades. Patrick, I'm really interested in your take from a sort of domestic Russia perspective, if you will, um, and how much impact this is going to have on Putin and and his regime. In terms of um, how significant this is for Putin... What's your read on how much this is going to be destabilising for him? It's bad news for him, clearly, as it would for any government. When you have a senior military commander mutinying, you know, this never looks good. But does it mean that uh, Putin is going to fall? No, one can't say that. Not all the arrows point in the same direction. All this happened in one day. It It was a very short mutiny. I mean, more people seem to have been killed in this sort of riot in the U.S. capital a couple of years ago. So one needs to keep a sense of proportion. And I think a lot of the commentary hasn't really done that. That said, this latest bizarre event comes on top of a series of misjudgments by Putin, failures on the battlefield, above all, his decision to invade Ukraine with an inadequate military force, 150,000 men to conquer a country which is the biggest in Europe, you know, was always pretty silly. And there have been a whole series of misjudgments since, of which this is only the latest one. So it's these are all cumulatively damaging. Will it lead to his uh, overthrow? Well, I don't think we can say that. First of all, if anybody is going to overthrow an autocratic leader, you know, if we can see it, the head of the secret police can see it, so it probably won't happen. And those things usually happen by surprise. But there's no reason to think that there's anybody there who can actually replace Putin at the moment, or that those within the the Russian elite think this is the moment to overthrow him. They all seem to have been uh, horrified by Prigozhin's sort of weird mutiny. And what about Putin's efforts, you know, if not domestically destabilised, what about his efforts in Ukraine. I mean, we saw um, Prigozhin make these videos in which he essentially debunked the reasons that Putin sort of started all of this, saying denazification, all these kind of pretenses, which it's been peddling for, for more than a year now, were lies. Is that going to affect things? It'll have some effect, yes. But, you know, Russian propaganda, the sort of Kremlin line has been to say, well, leave aside whether it was a great idea to start this war or not. We're in it, you know, and we'll just have to fight it. And they'll probably pursue the same line. I think what's what's more damaging to my mind is we have Yevgeny Prigozhin, who comes across and always has come across as something of a crackpot. He's not a professional soldier. His sort of rants sound a bit unhinged. So you could say that. But, you know, what does that say about the person who appointed him? And, you know, 
his old pal Vladimir Putin, who he's known since the uh, 1990s in St. Petersburg. Again, you could say his attacks on uh, Shoigu, the defense minister, and Gerasimov, the chief of general staff, you know, have quite a lot going for them. But these were the guys, these were the senior commanders who, from 24th of uh, February last year, when the invasion started, have conducted one of the more disastrous military campaigns in history. But they're still there. That, again, is pretty amazing. Putin seems to have this fixation on keeping his old pals in office, regardless of their performance. So those things are highlighted. You know, would he get rid of them now? Would he appoint anybody better? But the overall military situation, it's something of a stalemate at the moment, which obviously the Ukrainians are trying to break. But the Russian army and armed forces have underperformed from day one. And a lot of this is down to Putin personally, I think. Mm. We talked there a bit about how Prigozhin and, and Putin go way back. Does that explain some of the perceived leniency in the way that Putin responded to this? I mean, I think many people find it quite amazing that you can lead an armed mutiny and then quite happily hop off into Belarus, which is a, a Russian ally. Yes, I mean, there, there is that element, you know, uh, how come he's got away with it and so forth. On the other hand, let's say there'd been a firefight on the outskirts of Moscow. That would be worse from Putin and Russia's point of view. You could say, yeah, this sort of seems lenient and a sign of weakness. On the other hand, you could think it's a sort of adept and a way of diffusing it without many people being killed. And also, of course, how this deal seems to be falling apart already with the question of whether Prigozhin is going to be the target of criminal charges and so forth, uh, the Russian parliament calling him a traitor. I doubt if this deal is going to last very long. Eric probably was designed to sort of get him off the streets last Saturday, and then they'll have a think subsequently about what to do with him. Well, let's talk more about the deal. What's in it for Belarus? Why, why are they doing this? Well, because they're an ally and subservient to Putin. They haven't said also they've sort of show they're doing him a good favor. And, you know, this whole deal is not a... None of this is set in steel. Prigozhin uh, made his gamble, and it failed. And it's very difficult to see him coming back. And it's very difficult to see him avoiding some sort of punishment by the Russian state. They're not going to be too forgiving about this. But also, you know, just remember, there isn't a great gap between him and the Russian state. You know, he was the old pal of Putin. You know, what modern state has a sort of mercenary army? This is the sort of thing we associate with Renaissance Italy, you know, and which is that important. So uh, that's pretty uh, strange. And also, you know, this army who paid for it, who was close to the GRU, Russian military intelligence, seems to have played a significant role in promoting it and arming it who made money about it. There's a lot of talk about its role in Central African Republic and Mali and so forth. But, you know, these are pretty sort of remote places. You don't make a lot of money there defending regimes. You can make an awful lot of money if you get supply contracts for 25,000 men in Russia, for the 25,000 men or however many men it was in, in Wagner. There's almost, I would have thought, certainly an element of corruption there. So Wagner was always sort of intertwined with the Russian state. Mm -hmm. So what comes next for them then? I mean, 
as you say, the Russian state can't just surely turn a blind eye to this and, and carry on as normal. Um, where do Wagner go from here? How much will this damage their relationship um, with the Kremlin? And, and as you say, can they sustain work outside of Russia? No, I think it's very difficult because they've been seen to turn against the state. In this whole business, you know, it's sort of, it's really a matter of perceptions as well as what actually uh, happened. So I don't think that Wagner is going to be a, a name to conjure with in Russia. You know, there was one good reason why Putin and the Russian leadership wanted to have Wagner there partly recruited from uh, prisoners, you know, some say up to 60% of its men. It's a rather strange military organization. It partly consisted of people from the prisons who were used as cannon fodder, but also um, very professional soldiers under contract who are pretty effective. The Ukrainians themselves say that in fighting in, in the Donbass, that actually it was the Wagner professionals who were the really effective ones. Mm. But, you know, why was it there? Another reason was that Putin always wanted to sort of avoid relying on ordinary Russians as conscripts because of the political backlash against a lot of conscripts being killed or wounded. Therefore, he preferred to rely on people from the prisons and conscripts, so that would avoid the public opinion being alienated. Mm-hmm. So do you think Wagner can survive this? Uh, I, in any substantial way, I think it would be very difficult. You know, was, uh, One of the reasons this happened, by all accounts, and I believe this, is that Prigozhin was responding to an attempt to uh, essentially incorporate Wagner into the Russian armed forces. Yeah, a few people have mentioned this. And that they were all to sign contracts with the Defence Ministry by the 1st of July, and then they would come under the Defence Ministry. So Prigozhin, having lost his ability to influence Putin or even be in touch with Putin from about three weeks ago has been sounding off. This doesn't start last Friday or early Saturday morning. It started really about three weeks ago when he was becoming more and more hysterical in his attacks on the army leadership. And this was uh, sparked off by this bid to incorporate Wagner into the uh, regular forces and take away his uh, Mm. commanding role. And therefore, he then carried out this sort of weird sort of mixture of somewhere between a mutiny and a sort of industrial action. There's a lot of speculation, isn't there, around the nature of this deal with Belarus. And as you said, you know, no one's quite sure exactly how long it will last, etc. What do we know about the deal with Belarus and what do we not know? Well, I think what we don't know is quite a lot. And, you know, was this the result of negotiations? You know, this suddenly popped up. Last Saturday, you know, was it just something which the Russians passed to Lukashenko because Putin didn't want to be seen to uh, be dealing directly with Prigozhin? That seems quite likely. But as I said, it you know it already seems to be falling apart. So I don't think it can be taken that seriously as if it was a sort of uh, carefully negotiated diplomatic agreement. Mm. What makes you say it's falling apart? Well, you know, it, it was, there was meant to be no criminal charges against Prigozhin. It's not, no longer clear that that's the case. Mm. And to, to what extent are his men, you know, personally loyal to him? That's another question that comes up. Uh, you know, but there, there are, then there are arrows pointing other, you know, in the other direction. Many people have pointed, very understandably, to their response of people on the streets in Rostov-on-Don of cheering Wagner. Now, is that just because, you know, they've been 
promoters as these sort of ace Russian fighters, so they get a cheer, or is that suddenly a much more fundamental hostility to the Putin government suddenly being revealed? We don't know. Obviously, it's pretty interesting. So, you know, many things in this whole affair are really still pretty uh, mysterious, unknown, shadowy, and uh, we don't quite know what happened or what's going to happen. Just as a final note, Patrick, I mean, as you say, too early to tell really what any of this means in the long term. But what do you think that we learn this weekend about the strengths, the weaknesses of the Putin regime? I think we probably learned quite a lot, but we should have sort of learned it before, you know. One, that Putin is referred to as a warlord in a sort of rather dramatic way. But if so, he's one of the more disastrous warlords in history, you know. From the very beginning, this invasion was extraordinary. It seemed it was predicated on the idea that the Ukrainian government and army would simply fold up and Russia would take over. The military seems to have expected at maximum 14 days fighting, with most of it in the first couple of days. So there was a complete misunderstanding and underestimation of Ukrainian resistance. And you don't need to be an expert to figure that out. It was always likely to happen. I mean, I remember a sort of intelligence expert on Ukraine telling me just a bit before the invasion, he said, I can't think of a single upside for Putin invading Ukraine. And that turned to be exactly true. So Putin's judgment very poor. Then throughout, then he was unable to mobilize Russian resources in manpower. Part of the time, the Ukrainians have just had more soldiers. Why? Since Russia is a much bigger country. Because Putin didn't want to uh, take the uh, political flack or dent in his popularity by uh, declaring a, a general mobilization. When it did occur, it was pretty chaotic. As I mentioned, we've had the same failed generals today as we had 16 months ago when this started. Then, the, you know, there have been interventions last uh, winter and earlier this spring. There were two sort of Russian offensives that got, seemed to be completely premature and got nowhere, which weakened them. So it's a pretty unrelenting record of military failure on uh, Putin's part. On the other hand, he's still in business. You know, one has to, I think, of Iraq, you know, that Saddam Hussein launched a disastrous uh, invasion of Kuwait in 1990, perhaps a, the, an event most recent in recent history which is most similar to the invasion of Ukraine, suffered a smashing defeat. There was an uprising against him, which, unlike the present event, tens of thousands of people were killed. And 13 years there, later, he was still in business until uh, the uh, U.S. invasion. So... The fact that these events occur doesn't mean that somebody like Putin is going to fall. We certainly can't be uh, sure about that. I think that also comes across to me you know, that one of the wars being fought in Ukraine is there's an information war. The media has been sort of spinning it as a complete disaster and Putin is going to go tomorrow. It's possible it's that, but the, the evidence simply isn't there. And there's no real sign that the Russian military political elite have either the uh, intention or the ability to get rid of him. So I think one should be very careful about drawing too many conclusions from what's happened. It's really confirmed what we knew before, that uh, Putin has poor judgment, that the Russian military are weaker than anybody supposed before the invasion last year. But this war isn't over, 
and the really decisive events, I think, are going to occur on the battlefield. Well, plenty more to discover and plenty more to discuss as all of this goes on. Patrick, thank you so much for joining us. Your insight is always incredibly valuable, so thank you. Thank you. Our reporters covered the weekend events around the clock with incisive exclusives and analysis. To support this work and to keep up to date with the latest news from around the world, consider a subscription. We've got a special offer on, which means you can try I for just £1 for a whole month this summer. Head over to inews.co.uk forward slash podcasts to get this deal. I for Open Minds. Subscribe today. We're joined now by our special projects editor, Rob Hastings, and from our foreign desk, Kieran Monks. Thank you both so much for joining us. It's been a pretty chaotic week, I think it's fair to say, a huge amount to unpack. One of the key questions which many people had was what effect this would have on the conflict in Ukraine. In some ways, it seemed to be a gift, you know, handed to Zelensky. But Prigozhin isn't known for his generosity to Ukraine as is. So, So what's your read on that? Well, my understanding is there's been no movement in the front lines since the drama of the weekend. Some initial talk from Ukrainian officials that they look to take advantage of what the Deputy Defence Minister, Hannah Maliar, called a window of opportunity has now changed to, we've not changed our plans. Mm. So in the short term, it appears there have been no significant benefits to Ukraine. However, Uh, They're very excited about the widening splits within the Russian military establishment, which holds out the promise of further dysfunction, which could eventually become very useful indeed. And perhaps even if they can't win this war, the Russian military may yet destroy itself for them eventually. Mm. And I wonder if there's a sort of wider, maybe psychological effect in terms of morale, right? It must be quite a boost for Ukrainian soldiers to see, you know, the Russian army in some ways sort of imploding. Well, I think we all saw these viral images with Ukrainians and enormous quantities of popcorn. And, and, and I believe it has been very entertaining for them. But also they've learned the hard way to be extremely sceptical of more or less anything going on over the border. So they're taking their popcorn with a pinch of salt. <laughs> Salty popcorn. So was it then a missed opportunity, do you think? For Ukraine? Yeah. Um. Potentially not. The the fundamentals, as I understand them, of the offensive that's ongoing haven't changed. And it's a very unfavourable dynamic for Ukraine in that they're expected to pierce these incredibly entrenched defensive lines featuring minefields and networks of trenches and anti-tank fortifications. And they don't have sufficient firepower or air power to pierce them. So that situation remains the same. So probably not a massive opportunity. It's more that perhaps their opportunity is to play on these splits. And they've been doing a good job of rumour mongering and fermenting discord. So you had the head of Ukraine's intelligence service, Budanov, who's a very interesting figure, who's allegedly, or someone's put out these reports, who's in touch with Prigozhin, and they've been in dialogue. That, to me, became very salient as he led this uprising against the regime, kind of what is his agenda? Who could he be in league with? I mean, Prigozhin is such a mysterious figure, it's almost impossible to decipher where he's coming from or what he wants. Well, let's talk more about him. Rob, you've written about the Wagner Group for quite a long time. 
who is Prigozhin? I realise this is a question probably people in his inner circle can't even answer, but give us a little bit of a history of this man. Well, he's quite a fascinating and unique figure to have gone from former hot dog salesman to the leader of this attempted mutiny or coup or whatever you want to call it, and the leader of this private army working with one of the world's biggest militaries. It's, it's such a strange combination of factors yeah. in his story. He emerged in St. Petersburg around the same sort of time that Vladimir Putin was there. And it's thought that their relations sort of link to both having connections in the criminal underworld from St. Petersburg. And that's where their alliance comes from. They're not sort of friends or necessarily political allies or anything like that, but they've had connections. And Putin at times has found it useful to lean on Prigozhin for business purposes and Prigozhin will sort of do whatever his masters want him to do in return for lots of money. He was a petty criminal in his youth, spent some years in prison. He came out and built a catering business and was successful enough that in 2006, and I think on other occasions as well, he served George W. Bush food during a meeting between Putin and the US president. So he really reached the top of the Russian catering empire. His career then took a strange turn where he ended up running some of the internet operations that Russia conducted against the US elections in 2016. That actually led to Prigozhin being sanctioned by the US in 2018, and he's on the FBI wanted list. And somewhere along the way as well, he also got involved in what has become the Wagner Group. These mercenaries were used to help Russia annex Crimea in 2014. And this was an effective use of mercenaries by Putin in that it gave him what people call plausible deniability. So it meant that Russia could say, oh, we haven't invaded Crimea. It's just these pro-Russian patriots that have decided it's time for us to take it back. They gave this sort of international cloak so that Russia could do what it wanted, but also sort of say, oh, it's nothing to do with us. I don't think Prigozhin was involved at the very start, but quite soon after that, he somehow became in control of what became the Wagner Group. So these mercenaries became a bit more organised. They started being used around the world, particularly in Africa, sometimes in sort of civil wars, sometimes just to sort of exploit mineral wealth. And then when Russia decided to invade Ukraine in 2022, it was thought that the Wagner Group mercenaries would be useful as sort of small, elite, little combat units who might be able to assassinate Zelensky, for example. And prior to the, the start of the full-scale Russian invasion of Ukraine, you speak to people who know about the Wagner Group, most of the mercenaries were thought to be sort of elite special forces veterans who maybe had retired from the normal Russian military but were getting their payday by doing bits and bobs of military work around the world. But these were quite high-level people. As the Russian invasion, full-scale invasion of Ukraine faltered and more of these people were killed, to supplement their ranks, Prigozhin ended up recruiting more and more people from prisons, you know, going into Russian penal colonies and saying, we'll commute your sentence if you come and fight for your country. And they've gone from being this elite unit of sort of small groups doing these tight missions to just big numbers of dirty dozen style former convicts who are being used as quite a blunt tool to just be thrown at the enemy in places like Bakhmut and just be sort of cannon fodder really. And that's where we get to the sort of rivalries I think between the Wagner group and the Russian military leadership. So Rob as you've mentioned 
The Wagner Group and the Russian military have been working together, not just in the current offensive in Ukraine, but actually prior to this. How has it gone from them working collaboratively to one of them essentially trying to totally kaput the other? So I think when Wagner first entered this conflict, there might have been a sort of quiet respect or understanding in the Russian military about what Wagner were and what they could do. Bearing in mind they were relatively quite small and they were comprised of quite elite troops. As Wagner became bigger and bigger and filled with these convicts, naturally the the Russian military became more suspicious of the group. Where there were then more of the Wagner mercenaries, they might have then ended up sort of brushing alongside each other on the front line of Ukraine. As far back as September, there was film footage, I think from a hotel, of Wagner mercenaries and Russian troops actually having a fight, you know, having a punch-up. And then in January, I spoke with Mark Galliotti, the defence and security analyst, and he was saying that Western intelligence already know of firefights happening between Wagner mercenaries and Russian troops. And a lot of this just boils down to them sort of not trusting each other. As this dispute got worse and worse, Prigozhin ended up personally abusing some of the Russian military head honchos more and more, particularly the sort of military leader, the top general, Valery Gerasimov, and Sergei Shoigu, the Russian defence minister. And this ends up becoming more and more insulting. And that's where we get to this place where he's trying to take tanks to Moscow to get the leadership of the Russian military overthrown. Well, this is very interesting because there's not very many people in Russia who can criticise top military generals or even Putin and live to see another day. How has Prokhorin reached this kind of untouchable place wherein he can say publicly on Telegram, we will have a new Russian president? try and march on Moscow and seemingly get away with it. Well, he may have slightly overplayed his hand in this case, but I suppose it would have been an estimation of his utility, both in Ukraine, where they were recording the only Russian games of this year in Bakhmut and Solidar and a few other places, and also their role internationally, where they're a vital instrument of Russian foreign policy across the Middle East and Africa in propping up favoured regimes and extracting resources. This is partly a popularity contest, uh, which we saw very vividly over the weekend. And on that occasion, Prigozhin lost, as most of the influencers in Russian high society came out for Putin. But prior to that, he opened the floodgates for a stream of criticism and very personal attacks on the Russian defense ministry chiefs. They became pariahs across the influential Russian military blogger sphere. So his stock was rising as theirs was falling. And he may have felt, and it would have been a very popular move if they got rid of Shoigu and blundering General Gerasimov, as he's known. So perhaps he may well have been disappointed that there wasn't more vocal support for him because there had been up until that point and there had been a lot of agreement with his criticisms of the defence ministry leaders. So why didn't it materialise then? Well, the most popular conclusion from the weekend is that Putin's regime is weakened. However, what was notable is during the march, you had governors, generals, influential people saying, we swear we're with the regime, we support Putin, and denouncing Prigozhin. However, a closer reading would suggest that many of those endorsements appeared to be not quite at gunpoint, but in hostage-style videos and without a great deal of enthusiasm. Whereas Prigozhin's men were treated like heroes in Rostov and some of the other cities they took over without firing a shot. So that could also be a concern and complicates the picture for how much support there is for either side. 
I'm wondering what's going to happen to the Wagner troops still left in Ukraine with Prigozhin now in Belarus, or at least thought to be in Belarus. Where does that leave them? They've essentially, you know, lost him as the figurehead. Will he still continue to operate their operations in Ukraine from another country? Or are they kind of rudderless now? I think a lot of those questions, we will find out the answers in the coming days. The Russian military numbers about one million troops in total, and it's thought that about 300,000 of those are operating in Ukraine. Wagner totals about 50,000, with most of those in Ukraine. So maybe one in six, one in seven Russian troops are, are Wagner troops. It shows they're an important part of the conflict, but they're by no means going to be the difference in this conflict. The other thing, though, is that it could end up being bad news for Ukraine because of this Belarus deal. Prigozhin is going to Belarus. Russia has said that Wagner mercenaries have the choice of either becoming just members of the Russian military, of sort of just going home, or going to Belarus. Now, if lots of them want to stay loyal to Prigozhin and they go to Belarus, the significance of that is that Belarus is to the north of Ukraine. Most of the fighting in Ukraine so far has been in the south and been in the east of Ukraine. At the start of the war, we saw this attempt to capture Kyiv with this big military convoy coming down from the north, but that didn't work out. And since then, the north hasn't been such a big factor in the war. If suddenly there's this big influx of Wagner mercenaries to the north of Ukraine, the Ukrainian ambassador yesterday, Vadim Prosteko, was explaining to me how that means that Ukraine will have to station a lot more troops in the north of its territory to secure that bit of its border. Those troops are going to be taken away from other bits of the war zone. So it could weaken Ukrainian defence and sort of overstretch them. And suddenly this bizarre incident that lots of Ukrainians would have been laughing about and cheering about could actually be a bit of a headache for them militarily. Well, also, while we've discussed, it does show a split within Russia, you know, and potentially that Putin's sort of grasp on power is not as iron-fisted as he might hope. It also shows that the current alternative is possibly even worse for Ukraine. I mean, Prigozhin, as Kieran's mentioned, doesn't think Ukraine should exist. He's not exactly good news. No, and that, that complicates the picture for the opposition as well, because over the weekend, one of the influential Russian dissidents, exiled oligarch Mikhail Khodorkovsky, said that Russian opponents of Putin should support this. And this was hugely controversial. And the Russian opposition has never been larger, but it's arguably never been more divided as well. So you have these private militias who are their own bosses, or at least have been to a large extent. And you have these exiled communities who are very fire and brimstone, burn it all down, but they're doing it from the luxury of the other side of the world. Then you've got the people who are still in Russia who are trying to stealthily expand their networks and undermine the regime. So groups like Vesna, the Feminist Anti-War Collective, they're doing sort of underground newspapers and, and quiet protests, and, and they're, they're trying to do what they can to undermine the regime from within. So when they see the exiles saying, oh, come on, let's have a civil war, let's back this fascist hunter, you know, that makes it more difficult for them to build support because obviously no one in Russian society really wants it to go to a, a civil war type of situation. But then again, from a Ukrainian perspective, one of the useful implications of this is it's shown how possible it is to get into Russia, to take territory into Russia and to make that another front, another distraction. So groups like this defector legion, Freedom of Russia, I spoke to their spokesman yesterday, former Russian MP Ilya Ponomarev, and he says they are very inspired by this action and they're studying it closely. They will launch their own actions to, in his own words, succeed where Wagner failed. And just looking beyond Ukraine and Russia and, and Belarus to much further afield, 
As we've talked about, Wagner's very active across Africa and we at the iPaper reported that they're currently in the conflict in Sudan at the moment. What does this mean for their operations there? <laughs> they could do with a rebrand and they could do with a new leader. But those operations, as I understand it, are too valuable to the Russian state to lose in financial terms, in terms of foreign influence. So they would be giving up an awful lot to get rid of Prigozhin at this point. So I think it's the, the most likely outcome is some mild reformulation, some new blood, some new branding, and those will largely continue, I'd imagine. So do you think that's why, just as a final note, that's why Prigozhin survived all this? Because he's essentially too valuable to the Russian state to be burnt? Well, watch this space. I mean, it would probably be very expensive to get insurance for him right now. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's probably more in the regime's interest to quieten things down rather than go to war with quite a valuable resource for them at mm -hmm. this point. Mm -hmm. So while I'd say his medium term prospects aren't good, in the short term, we're likely to see some effort to paper over these yawning chasms and at least the foreign operations, I'd imagine, would continue. Well, Rob, Kieran, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely fascinating to get your perspective and insight into all of this. That is all that we've got time for today. Thank you so much for joining us and for listening. I'm Molly Blackall. You can find me on Twitter at Molly Blackall and on Instagram at Molly.Blackall. And you can keep up to date with all of the news from Russia and beyond and the fantastic projects that Rob and Kieran do at inews.co.uk. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. Thank you.